The talk you are about to hear is by Roshi Amala Wrightson, teacher at the Auckland Zen Center. This is the first day of our spring seven-day session, 2nd of September 2023. And we're going to spend the next few Teishos uh, exploring the life and Zen teaching of Tangen Harada Roshi. Uh, we'll be reading from a new book that's just come out called Throw Yourself into the House of the Buddha. This was... Uh, a favorite, favorite saying of um, Tangan Roshi's. Uh, this book is edited by Kogan Sazanik. Um, I don't think we've got any, maybe any information on him. No. Um, sounds like a, a European. Uh, surname. Uh, he has gathered together translations of Tangan's talks by uh, Belinda Atoway Yamakawa, and the book has an after afterward by um, Bowden Colheed, my teacher. This uh, Tangan Roshi is a very important figure for our lineage of Zen. He was uh, a mentor to Roshi Kaplo during his difficult early years at Hoshinji in Obama in the Japan Sea and Roshi Kaplo has himself said that he doesn't know if he would have lasted it, lasted the distance if it hadn't been for the kindness in so many ways of Tangan Roshi um, in Roshi's forward, uh, or afterward rather, to the book, he tells some of the stories that um, we heard over the years and which some of which appear in the Three Pillars of Zen. And there's one in particular which, which illustrates Tangan's spirit and his kindness. He, uh, this is, now this is Roshi Colheed writing. Tangan's demands on Kaplow matched his faith in them. Once when the American newcomer was sitting in the Dokusan line, Tangan, who alone at the monastery had learned a little English, English, was sitting behind him, ready to go in with him as his interpreter. No sooner had Kaplow struck the bell and stood up that Tangan, without warning, struck him violently behind the ear. Kaplow, enraged, took a swing at him, but with no time to lose, stormed straight into see Harada Roshi. For the first time, Kaplow was able, in his aroused state, to respond to the Roshi no-mindedly, from the guts rather than from the head. Harada Roshi signaled his delight. 
From then on, Kaplow found himself operating, and this is quoting him, operating on a higher energy level, and at Dokusan was no longer afraid of the Roshi. Tangan had known well that compassion can take the form of harshness. And then there's, there's uh, another story which, which is in um, the Three Pillars of Zen. Tangan meted out his special compassion for the American, even when doing so cost him precious sleep. On the last night of a seven-day session, after the formal schedule had ended for the day, Kaplow secluded himself in the bathhouse to continue his sitting. And my guess is the reason why he went to the, the bathhouse, where there's a traditional uh, Japanese bath, um, would be because it would be warmer. He's Kaplow, Philip Kaplow stuck, suffered terribly from the cold, um, and and the the bath would have a would have a, a fire in it, and most likely in that small space it was it was warmer. Tangan, ever solicitous for, of his struggling foreign charge, followed him in and spent hours urging him on with the Kyosaku. By the end of the night, they had bonded to a degree un unique in such, to such shared exertions. As dawn broke, they silently embraced, and Kaplow remained even further indebted to his mentor, friend, and Dharma brother. Over the over the years, um, Tangan welcomed many um, students from the Rochester Zen Centre to stay with him in training at Bukokuji. Um, it was one of the few places when my teacher went. It was one of the few places that actually accepted foreigners. Um, he says, my teacher says of this that. that um, Tangan Roshi was willing to go the extra distance to give even those with no Zen experience a shot. No Zen experience, often no Japanese and very little understanding of Japanese culture. One of those follow, uh, foreigners was Belinda Atoe Yamakawa. Uh, she, for, for many, many years, was um, the interpreter at Bukokuji and um, especially helpful to uh, foreigners going going to stay there, uh, helping them to navigate things and, and translating um, Tanga Roshi's Taisho's and uh, going to Doksan with students as well. She sadly passed away a few years ago quite prematurely from, um, I think it was the liver cancer or stomach cancer. Anyhow, we'll get to the actual the actual text, and uh, read a little bit of the pre preface before getting into the his life story. Daisetsu Tangan Harada Roshi, called Roshi-sama, with respect and affection by his students. Um, sama is, is a uh, honorific that gets tacked on to, to names. So it's, it's 
um, San is the more familiar honorific. Sama is much more um, uh, differential, a, a greater kind of honor to be called, uh, have this, this um, suffix. So Daisetsu Tangan Harada Roshi, called Roshi-sama with respect and affection by his students, was born as Usao Abe in the city of Niigata on August 24th, 1924. So um, he was 12 years uh, junior, younger than uh, Philip Kaplow. Philip Kaplow was, was uh, born in August 1912, but very much his, his senior in the Dharma. Narrowly surviving World War II, and we'll come to that later, he was haunted by his war experiences, human suffering, and the question of life and death. He entered Hoshinji, a famous Zen monastery in the town of Obama, where he practiced under one of the most significant Zen masters of modern Japan, Dayan Sogaki Roshi. Uh, his name also is Harada because he, uh, at a certain point, adopted um, Tangan, and so Tangan took his, his family name. So Dayun Sogaku Harada Roshi, who ordained him and gave him the name Tangan. After intense training, his realization was confirmed and he received Dharma transmission and Inka Shome at the age of 27, very, very young age. Tangan Roshi then served as a personal attendant to Dayan Roshi for several years, co-leading practice at Hoshinji while living together with his teacher in a small hermitage just outside the gate. In 1955, Tangan Roshi became the abbot of the neighboring temple of Bukokuji in, at the request of his teacher. And at the time, Bukokuji was pretty much pretty run down close to being a ruin, and the, f the first few years there, um, Tangan Roshi had to do a lot of fundraising and hard work to repair it. And it remained a modest collection of buildings. We went there in, in 2001, and uh, compared with many of the, the temples that one visits in Japan, it was, it was quite small, but very much a training center. Not not part of the the uh, the big bureaucracies that you find in in Soto, especially, but also Rinzai. From that time on, almost sixty years, Tangan Roshi received at Brukokuju anyone who was willing to follow his austere lifestyle and his guidance and practice, not discriminating between lay and monastic or by gender or by nationality. He didn't travel the world to spread the Dharma. He just sat in his small temple, nestled in the shadow of a little mountain on the outskirts of a fishing town by the Sea of Japan. Yet slowly word of him spread around the world, bringing thousands of people from all continents to practice there. I think it's a very, it's a very powerful image, this, of 
of this master just staying in one place for almost 60 years and the world coming to him. Now we'll skip forward to um, the count of Tangan's life. This is in in Tangan's own words. This has been sort of stitched together from various sources in his Taishos um, to to create a, a kind of a integrated account of his life. He says. I came into this world with a great debt. My mother gave her own life in order to give birth to me. She already had three children, and when she was pregnant with me, she was diagnosed with stomach cancer. The doctor urged her to apologize to the baby and to have the cancer removed from her stomach. Those around, my father as well, tried to persuade her to do it. But she stood firm, vowing, this baby in my belly is going to be born. I was born on August 24th, the day we worship <coughs> the day <coughs> the day we worship Jizo Bodhisattva. After that it was too late to for the surgery. Just before she died, she very clearly expressed herself to those close to her. Even after I die, I will care for and protect this child. She must have prayed fiercely for my protection. She died before my first birthday and left me in the care of Jizo Bodhisattva. There's quite a bit to this, we'll just explore. Just this, this um, notion of coming into the world with a great debt his mother um, dying in order to give life to him. Um, you, you can you can probably understand that this this sense of of having a debt to one's mother uh, might be a powerful fuel for the practice, and this is what it proved to be. It's not unusual um, in the stories of uh, Zen teachers and Zen masters that there is something like this in in there. Master Dogen lost both his parents by the time he was, I think it was six or seven, and was um, struck by the, the impermanence and ephemerality of life when he saw the the smoke rising from the incense pot on the um, his father's uh, altar at his funeral, uh, or, or the great twentieth-century Chinese master Shu Yun, great cloud, um, whose mother died uh, in childbirth with him. She had a prolapsed uterus. And he, he at one point made a long pilgrimage, taking a, doing a prostration after each step as a way of uh, requiting his debt of gratitude to his mother. Or 
um, Senzaki Roshi, who, as I recall, I didn't wasn't able to look this up, but pretty sure he um, he was a, he was a pioneer of uh, American Zen, and I recall it rightly, he was rescued from the arms of his dead mother who had died um, in a in a snowstorm. I think it's somewhere like possibly Manchuria. These very very dramatic things uh, make uh, can make a deep impression on us, and f and fire up our our, uh, our our zeal, our religious zeal. But really, if we if we think about it, we're all indebted to um, our mothers and fathers and others that none, none of us would be here if it weren't for um, the care of, of some people, not necessarily our, our biological parents, but uh, somebody fed us, somebody looked after us when we were hope, helpless and unable to do this for ourselves. He mentions in this passage also um, that he was born on the day that um, Jizo Bodhisattva is, is uh, worshipped or remembered. Jizo is the uh, Japanized uh, name of Kshitagarbha Bodhisattva, or Tizang uh, in Chinese. He's a very much a, a beloved figure in Japan. Uh, protector of women and babies in particular, uh, but more generally or more widely, beings in transition. So in, in China, he's associated more with um, funerary rites and protecting beings in hell in particular. Um, you find him in a lot of Chinese temples. In Japan, he's he's evolved into a a, a beloved folk figure. Um, often you see in Japan at, at crossroads or now at busy intersections a little shrine which, which have six or more Jizo figures. Uh, the six is, is, is uh, representing one for each of the six realms of unenlightened existence. That's the hell beings, hungry ghosts, animals, humans, fighting gods and heavenly beings. So really what it means, um, in, in short, is all, all beings suffering in samsara, in the endless round of birth and death. And it can't be, keep, it strikes me that um, Tangan Roshi looks a little bit like Jizo, very um, sweet expression, compassionate expression. Um, and he obviously uh, felt that he was, he was under Jizo's uh, protection.
He continues, when I was still very young, when I came to understand what my mother had done for me, I wrote on a piece of paper, my mother laid down her life for me. What does she mean for me to do with this gift? I continuously wondered what it was that I should do with this life. Was it my mother telling me? What was my mother telling me? That's, that's a good question for, for each of us to ask ourselves. What am I to do with this life? What, what have I received from those before me and what might I pass on to those who come after me? Yet I was a terribly dissatisfied child. I could not be calm. Of course, I was guided by greed, anger, and ignorance. I was overtaken by wants, creating seeds for pain. I lived immersed in dualistic thinking. It was a miserable childhood. When I was about 12 years old, a deep questioning arose in me. Whenever I felt a touch of wind or looked up at the sky overhead, I would ask myself, what is there down deep beneath the surface of things? When I would eat an orange, for instance, I wouldn't think of its taste or colour, but I would wonder, what is there? There is something I feel but don't understand. I sense its presence but can't take hold of it. My inability to answer these questions was a source of much discontent and I always felt separated from people and things. I think very many of us come to the practice ha having felt, had bouts of this feeling of alienation, of being on the fringe of things, on the edge of life, not truly participating in it. And for some of us it's not so uh, intermittent. It can be feel like it's all the time that we... We stand apart or, or just a spectator rather than a player in, in life. Around that time I was playing tennis and as I was good at it I was asked to join the team. I gave all my all to practice. Even in the rain when it grew dark I would stay with it. I would ride home on a bicycle after dark, past shops with their lights shining brightly. The streets were still bustling with people at that time. There were old people, young people, people in between, and as I rode through the streets with groups of people passing under the bright lights, I would be asking myself, there is life, and all these people are living it, but what is this life? There is something. There is something. So this is this is um, already in him at the at the age of of twelve. This, this sense of of doubt, great doubt, that is so valued in Zen was growing. A sense of wonderment, which you could say that really was there from 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 the very beginning of his life.
next chapter we'll read from is called Be Like a Chair. I was still young when I vowed to myself that I would always do what really needed to be done, that I would pour myself into whatever was before me to do. At about 16 years old, I became driven to really question myself, to reflect upon myself, asking, who is the most good-for-nothing person around, the weakest, the laziest, the most useless one around? I knew deep in my heart that it was I, the weakest world one of all, and I beat myself up over this. There was a time I struggled so hard that I actually managed to knock my own jaw out of place. I couldn't stand myself for thinking ill of others. I couldn't stand it that I would dislike others. I saw myself as so pitiful. My own habits, my own character were unbearable to me. This is quite quite shocking to imagine him somehow punching himself in the face and, and actually dislocating his jaw. But we can also take it as um, an encouragement. We can go to the depths of self-hatred, deepest places of depression, and even self-harm, as Tangan did here, and come back from all of that, find our way, Find the path. He goes on. At 17 years old, I had the good fortune to read a book called In Shitsuroku by En Ryoban, a noted scholar from the Ming Dynasty. The... Um, Chinese name of this author it's a footnote about it um, in Ryobon is the Japanese name applied to uh, Yuan Liao Fan 1533 to 1606 the book's title in English is Liao Fan's Four Lessons Liao Fan's Four Lessons He goes on, this is a book of instruction the author compiled for his son, Tenke. The term Inshitsu, of Inshitsu Roku, means to be decided without one's being aware of it. That is to say that the fortunes that befall a person, sunshine and shadow, ups and downs, are naturally determined without his knowing it by his own past actions, virtue and vice. Upon carefully reading this book, it became clear to me that there is a path to be followed, and I resolved that then to follow that path. According to the book, En Ryobon first came to deeply believe in karmic retribution through a fortune teller named Ko. He then met with Zen master Unkoku, who impressed him upon him that karma is only one side of the picture. I don't have the, the Chinese name of this master, Unkoku. Thus, he writes to Tenke that one can take responsibility for the construction of one's world. 
It is not a matter of living out of one's, out one's life wedged into a predetermined mould, but rather, by virtue of one's own efforts, it's possible to move, if even just one step, closer towards one's aims, to, to one's highest aspirations, we could say here. Another way of, of phrasing this would be to say that um, if our present is shaped by our past actions, then our f future is going to be shaped by our present actions. So it's a dynamic process. It's not fate, it's not set in stone, but um, fluid and dependent on, on how we respond. If, we're, if we face um, injustice of some sort, how do we respond to that? How do we uh, work with it? Thich Nhat Hanh has a, has a book that, uh, called For the Future to be Possible. We, we shape our future right now. There, in a real sense, there only is this moment. From childhood on, I had been in search of something and had always been a rather rebellious youth. I kept thinking that I had never really been given the opportunity to understand the reason for living. I did not care much for Buddhist priests. I had the pre preconceived idea that they wore funny clothes, talked a lot of nonsense, and led lives of comfort and ease. But in Ryobon's book, really addressed itself to that something I had been searching for, and it surprised me to realize that the lesson came through a Buddhist priest. Although in Shitsuroku is at heart a Confucian text rather than Buddhist, it is a Zen master who clearly points the way. Incidentally, the man who translated the book into Japanese, Daiun Harada Roshi, was to become my Zen teacher five years later could could um, take this as an, an example of of karmic affinity. Tangan is finding his way towards um, a teacher who can respond to his his um, questions about. what this is, that we, this life that we are living is. I then resolved to become like a chair. A chair doesn't refuse its services to anybody. It just takes care of the sitter and lets him rest their legs. After it has served its purpose, no one gets up and gives thanks or offers words of kindness to the chair. It's will more likely get kicked out of the way. The chair doesn't grumble or complain or bear a grudge, but just takes whatever is given. A chair doesn't plop itself down on top of the sitter, right? When there is a job to be done, it puts forth all its energy without picking and choosing according to its desires. I thought, 
Wouldn't it be great to have such a heart? I wrote on a big sheet of paper, be like a chair. And every day I took note of how close I came. If even a little dissatisfaction arose, I would regard that as a disgraceful state of mind for a chair. I considered how thoroughly I was of use to others. What was positive about all this was that if I possibly could, I wanted to put others before myself. The endeavour was not at all forced or unnatural. It arose from life itself and was enjoyable, not painful. This is, you, you could say that um, the spirit of bodhicitta arose in the young Tangan. This, this aspiration to be of help to others in the most fundamental kind of way. And when, when we hear about bodhicitta and about compassion, bodhicitta literally means the heart of awakening. Um, we might think of this uh, about practicing compassion as being, being miserable, but it gives rise to this aspiration to help, which, which is joyful. When we chant the, the Kanzayon, we say it, um, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, eternal, joyous, selfless, pure. The joy of responding to a need and fulfilling it, which he had talked about earlier. Doing what is necessary. During the time that I was following this practice, I went to climb Mount Kimpoku, a rather small mountain of the Jukoku Pass near the town of Yugawara. As I came, climbed that day, I could think of nothing but my own selfishness. Shedding tears, I repeatedly reflected and repented, thinking, I'm no good, I'm no good. As I made the 30-minute ascent to the mountain trail, I think this, the, we can fairly say that this I'm no good, I'm no good is not um, coming from the same place that uh, was the source of his punching himself in the face. It was more like a, a, uh, an assessment of, of his, his um, aspiration and where he, where he wished to take that. There was a large stone statue on the flat crest of the mountain. If I saw it today, I might know what it is, but at that time I had no idea. Along the way, there had been a number of figures of Kanon, so I think perhaps the statue was of Shakyamuni Buddha. In those days, I knew nothing of Buddhism or of paying homage to its founder. I had, however, committed to memory a text by Shouen Yoshida that was inspiring to me, and I began to chant it in front of the Buddha statue. Through chanting, I must have entered into a purer state of mind. Just um, a footnote, out, footnote on this Shouen Yoshida. Shouen Yoshida, 1830 to 1859, 
one of the most distinguished intellectuals in the late years of the Tokugawa shogunate. It doesn't say what, what this, this poem was that he was reading, reciting, but the reciting in itself took him into this altered state, what he calls a purer state of mind. Then I crossed to the other side of the mountain, which formed a precipice. A valley had been gouged out below, and beyond the valley stretched the Pacific Ocean. To one side I could see the rolling hills of the Izu Peninsula. Transfixed by the mountain landscape, I was standing just on the edge of the cliff. There I was asking for nothing. I wasn't thinking or analysing. I was adding nothing. The wind began to gust up toward me from the valley below. I became enveloped by the wind. I felt as if I were growing bigger and bigger. At that moment, I realized that I was supported by heaven and earth, by all things. I was being told, all things are becoming you, nurturing you. Looking at that mountain, the mountain was me. The wide, wide valley became me. I realized that whatever I heard, whatever I saw, everything is always and forever supporting me, caring for me. Happiness gushed from the depths of my belly. My joy was uncontainable. I began to shout my own name at the top of my lungs seven or eight times. My name rang out over the horizon, over and over. I could not stay still. I, it was with unsuppressed joy that I began to race back down the mountain. I could, it could have been dangerous, but my steps were natural, my feet were sure. I sped down the mountain with such force. It was my body moving, but not my own body at the same time. I ran toward the town of Atami, where I boarded the train for home. But my world was changed. Everything now was so intensely intimate. Everything that I encountered was so profoundly close. I remember picking up a small stone beside the path and carefully holding it and turning it in my hands as I encouraged it to be strong and steady. Good, good. Then I laid it carefully back down in its place. A bright and changed world unfolded before me. For one or two months after that experience, everything, down to the pebbles along the roadside, brilliantly glistened. I thought... It is an intimate, friendly life. What a what a turnaround from saying not not. Um, what was that he said? I'm no good. I'm no good. Of course, <laughs> probably most spectators to his picking up the stone and talking to it would think he'd gone mad. But it's this is you could call it divine madness touching into a truth which uh, is all around us and yet we, we miss it, most of us. I was filled with the knowledge of being together with all things, part of the same life. At the time, I still knew nothing of Zazen, but the walls separating me from others had collapsed. My world had become somehow without discrimination, 
so I felt as if I could even chat with the chirping sparrows. Without my any theoretical understanding, and without being able to explain what had happened, I had tapped into the very joy of life, and I determined from then on that I would dedicate myself to repaying my gratitude. I returned to the preparatory school where I was boarding. Everything had become different. I felt no I had no feeling of dissatisfaction or disharmony with others. I only wanted to help everyone however I could. Everything was so much fun. I was filled with energy and enthusiasm. At that time I was living in a dormitory room with three or four other boys. In the mornings when my roommates and I would get up and they were slow to get into the day, I would bounce up, fold up and put away their futons while they got ready and do my own last. I would then be the last one out to put on my wooden sandals, but I had so much energy that I would still arrive at the sports field first. I was propelled by a joyous life force. Somebody said to me recently that, that they thought Zen was supposed to be um, hard and difficult and um, harsh. Perhaps we can be um, misled by the forms such as the use of the Kyosaku or perhaps by the, the scowling face of, of Bodhidharma figures who, who can seem so grim and, and, and uh, scary. But actually, if you look closely at, at Bodhidharma figures, they're kind of funny, more, more so. They're, they're a little bit irreverent. They often play up his... his uh, uh, quirky nature. But more broadly, Buddha figures, uh, if you look closely at them, they're, they're uh, radiating kindness quiet kind of joy. I think we'll just uh, stop here now and recite the four vows and continue with this um, account tomorrow. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passion. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit 
www.aucklandzen.org.nz